and welcome to She Said, She Said. I'm your host, Laura Cox Kaplan. We're joined by the amazing Kristen Soltis Anderson. Kristen is a Republican pollster. She is an expert on the millennial generation, the author of a terrific book called The Selfie Vote. She's also the co-founder and partner at Echelon Insights. That is an innovative polling and consulting firm. She's a regular guest on TV and cable, and also the co-host of a terrific podcast herself that's called The Pollsters. And she co-hosts that with a Democratic counterpart, Margie O'Mara. It's super terrific if you've not had a chance to check it out. Kristen was one of Time Magazine's 30 Under 30, who are changing the world. And she was also featured as one of Elle Magazine's most compelling women in Washington. Her work, without question, has and continues to have a significant impact on the way we think about the changing political landscape, polling, millennials, and the GOP. There is no mystery as to why we invited you today. Kristen, welcome. Thank you so much for joining oh, us. Oh, I'm so excited to be here. We're so happy to have you. I should also say a big thank you because Kristen has been an advisor to She Said, She Said and given us some great tips on how to make this podcast terrific. So thank you for that oh, as well. Of course. So let's get right into it and talk about polling. Um, 2016 was a really interesting year from a polling oh, perspective. It sure was. <laughs> right? <laughs> So what happened? Why the confusion? I mean, leading up to the election, folks were very surprised based on what they thought the polling was telling them. Did the public get it wrong? Is polling completely messed up? What's the deal? What are the facts? So here's the, the fact that blows people's minds about polling in 2016, that the national polling, the ballot test that you ask people across the country, who's going to win, Hillary Clinton, Donald Trump, was more accurate in 2016 than it was in 2012. How is that possible? So what's crazy is that the way we were tracking this horse race, the public consciousness, was largely through these national horse race polls. But it turns out that's not how we elect presidents in America. We elect them through the Electoral College on a state-by-state -state basis. And so the national polling average, at the end of the day, showed Hillary Clinton was going to win by about three points. And if you look at the national popular vote, Hillary Clinton wins by just over two points. Very close to what the polls were showing. But that is not how we elect presidents. So one, it was this sort of over-reliance on this metric that is actually not related to how we elect presidents. And I think that allowed folks to, to get it in their minds that, well, Hillary Clinton's up. She's been up in almost every one of these polls I've seen. Obviously, she's going to win. But the second piece of this is that there were state-by-state -state polls that wildly varied in their accuracy. So there were polls in Virginia, in Colorado, in New Hampshire, in Florida, for the most part, that were pretty close. But there were polls in Ohio, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin that were way out of whack. And a sort of after the fact analysis by the polling industry found a big problem was the underrepresentation of voters without college degrees. That if you look at something like the exit polls, they dramatically overestimate the percentage of people who vote who have college degrees. 
uh, and the polls in those states were overestimating the proportion of voters that would have college degrees. Now that's not always a huge deal, but in this election where there was a huge difference between how white voters with college degrees and white voters without college degrees voted, if you get that metric wrong, your poll is going to be way off. And so it was a, an isolated situation in a handful of states, but that led the Electoral College projections mm. to assume that there were a bunch of pieces off the board when they were actually in play. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I myself was guilty of this. In my sort of looking at the Electoral College and looking at all of the polls, I assumed that Pennsylvania was probably a state that Hillary Clinton was going to win. She was up pretty consistently in most of the polls by a reasonably healthy margin. I had felt a little, you know, scarred by four years earlier when folks said, ah, Mitt Romney might win Pennsylvania. And I had thought, oh, maybe he will. And that really wasn't something that was on the table. And so sort of overcorrecting, if you assume that Pennsylvania is not a piece that's in play, then suddenly all of these other states it's hard to get to 270. It's hard to get to a Trump win. And so you had those forecasts, right, that said, oh, Hillary Clinton has a 70, 80, 90% chance of winning. That only works if the state-by-state polls are pretty close to accurate. And they were just catastrophically wrong in that handful of states. So when people say now, well, can you trust the polls at all? I say, you need to be a thoughtful consumer of the polls. Uh, In some ways, it is miraculous how good the polling was in an awful lot of places. Again, a bunch of states, the polls were perfect. At a national level, the polls were really close. But it's our interpretation of the data and the certainty that we attach to these findings that lets us be more confident about things than we should be. And Mm -hmm. so my hope for the future is that people will not completely throw polls out, assume that they're all garbage, assume that they're all fake news. That's a very sort of trendy view these days. Um, But what I find is that people who say the polls are fake news only think that polls are fake news when it's bad news for them. And when a poll is good news for someone, then they tout it and they say, oh, look at how great this poll number is for me. Um, I would encourage people to have a consistent, healthy skepticism toward polls. Do not take any of them as the gospel truth. And understand that any poll is a probabilistic exercise. That if I do a poll and I show that we're running against each other and you're up by three points, that means that reality could be that I'm actually up by one point or you're up by seven points. Mm -hmm. Uh, That the margin of error just means that reality is not 100% what the poll shows. And so it's just about being being more thoughtful and, and thinking probabilistically about what polls can and can't tell us. That's, I mean, that's very well said. If you, so given the fact that they're, they're basically working and it's more of an interpretation of the data, what would you change to improve that? Because I think it's, it's hard to expect the public to sort of take a step back. We've not seen great evidence of that happening naturally, and the media doesn't encourage that, right? The media perpetuates this sort of, you know, jumping to conclusions and the polls say this and therefore this must be the outcome. Like, that's probably exactly the wrong way to look at polling from from the way you just explained. Yes, so- it's, it's, it's quite popular these days to blame the media for things, and I will put myself in that camp when it comes to dealing with, <laughs> with poll numbers. No, because it's, you know, I, I do the pundit thing. I, I go on various networks and talk about what I think voters are thinking and feeling. 
Uh, and I can be a boring pundit at times because I'm very big on the, well, on the one hand, but on the other hand, and that's not nearly as exciting on television as the 20 second soundbite that makes a really confident prediction. So I, uh, you know, I, I think that a lot of this is that the media, for, for valid reasons, for ratings driven reasons, views politics like a sporting event. It's the scoreboard that you're watching when you're watching these ballot test polls. But 99% of what polling does is not the ballot test. 99% of what polling does is not seen publicly. It is not this horse race, who's up, who's down. Instead, it's asking questions about how people think, how people feel, what moves them, what changes their minds. That's the stuff that's behind the scenes where if the number, the real number is off by a point or two, that's okay. That's not the end of the world. You're still able to make strategic decisions. But the way the media does polling and presents it, if you're off by one point or two points in either direction, then people go, oh, well, the polls missed. And it's just, I think, an unhealthy way that we uh, talk about and consume polls that, that has made it so that people now don't trust them anymore. And, and that, to me, is, I think, fairly troubling. How about the role of technology? Um, so what's happening from a technological standpoint in terms of changing the way that the information's gathered and potentially improving in areas where, you know, you're not able to, you're, you overestimate or underestimate in certain areas. What's the role of technology related to that? What's, what's changing? Technology has been a blessing and a curse for pollsters. So the curse side of it is that now it is very easy for folks to have a smartphone, um, and to have an, that kind of access where they don't need a landline. Uh, it has made it so that people now have caller ID. I mean, when was the last time you answered a call from a number that you didn't recognize on your cell phone? Never. Uh, right, <laughs> and you are not alone. I mean, response rates are in the single digits for, for telephone polls these days. And yet miraculously, again, as I mentioned, the national polls, which were largely based on telephone polls, were still pretty right. I mean, How is that possible, right, though? I don't is, understand this. It, it, that, that's why I say it's nothing <laughs> short of miraculous, yeah. that even though these response rates have gotten so low, for the most part, that 6% of people who take polls is not that different from the 94% of people who don't take polls. And the ways in which they differ is that that 6% tends to be a little more civically engaged and more likely to vote all of which is a bias that is a good bias if you're a political pollster. It means you're more likely to be talking to the people who are actually voting. So technology has been a curse in that it has made it harder for us to reach people through the traditional vehicles. Uh, and there are lots of regulations, which 99% of people love, pollsters are the only people that don't love them, that prevent the use of an auto dialer to contact a cell phone. So that means that calling people on their cell phones to do survey research is extremely expensive and complicated these days. And that's why you're seeing less and less of it. Now, the blessing for pollsters is it means we can shift online. If we can't reach people on the phone, are there new vehicles uh, to reach them? And so online polling is a field that has really gotten much more sophisticated in the last half of a decade. Um, Did you see much of that in 2016? In 2016, there was a lot of polling that was done online, and it was interesting because some experiments were done to try to figure out, uh, are people more likely online to say that they're voting for Donald Trump than they are willing to tell 
someone who's calling them on the phone. And there were some experiments that showed, yes, there was an effect. There were other experiments that showed, no, there wasn't an Meaning effect. Meaning that you'd be more honest. You'd be more honest with an online poll. Uh, there are really exciting things you can do with an online poll that you can't do with a phone poll. If I am testing uh, a complicated piece of policy or a very long message, over the phone, that's really hard to do. You have to read someone something, expect that they've retained it, and then ask them to comment on it. That's hard in a phone poll. But online, people have the ability to sit, consume a paragraph, think about it, and then reflect on it and answer questions in a way that they just can't in a phone survey. You can test videos, you can test images, you can do all sorts of exciting things with online polling that you simply can't with the phone. And so we are getting better about being able to create a representative sample out of the people that we find online. And that's getting more and more sophisticated at a very rapid pace. And so it would not surprise me if by the time you get to the 2020 election, most of the polling that you're seeing is being conducted online. How much do you worry about access? Uh, either because a voter is older, perhaps, and is not as comfortable with the technology, or because they don't have the technology at all. How much do you worry about that? So it's still a concern. Um, in the same way that there are concerns about phone polling not reaching people who don't have the means or access to a cell phone now, or who may simply be choosing not to pick up that landline phone, there's also the access and sort of coverage question for online. The good news is that has declined. It's declined quite a bit in the last decade. Um, you now have, uh, you know, my my grandmother is on Facebook and things like that. So it's, it's not perfect. Um, and there are some online panels that have tried to fix this by using very old school sampling techniques, contacting people by mail and saying, if you don't have access to the internet, we will give it to you. If you don't have access to a computer, we will give it to you. And the idea is that those panels try to eliminate that bias completely so that you aren't just talking to people with the means to access the internet, you are talking to people of all socioeconomic statuses because the pollster has made that possible. So Kristen, let's shift gears a little bit. We've talked a lot about polling. Let's talk about your other passion area, which is millennials and millennial research. Um, you had great success with a terrific book just a few years ago called The Selfie Vote. Um, you know, as you know, businesses uh, are bending over backwards to understand millennials, to appeal to them, to sell to them, to, uh, to keep them in the, in the workforce, to recruit them. What are, what's the most common mistake that you see people and businesses making as it relates to millennials? I think one of the most common mistakes I see is people trying too hard, if that makes sense. Um, that they sort of assume you can either take an old message and just cram it into social media and that will work fine. Um, a sort of, I see this happen in politics a lot where folks will go, oh, well, the kids are all online. So I'm going to, we got to, we got to get on the Snapchats and we got to, let's, let's do that. And, and then they just take an old message and, you know, somebody sitting there in a suit at a desk and they put them up on Snapchat sort of saying the same things that politicians have said for the last three decades. And they, they think that's going to work. Or on the other side, it's, it's the trying too hard where so an, another political example i'll give and, and i don't intend this with any sort of partisanship uh it's just an example i i think of when i think oh how not to communicate with millennials is there was a moment during the campaign when during the the democratic primary when hillary clinton's campaign tweeted out 
students, tell us how you feel about your student loan debt in three emojis. And it was just like, this is a, this is a serious issue that, that deeply impacts people. And I think, you know, students who are being affected by student loan debt right. would even go, Come on, I, this sounds like the sort of thing that someone who is a couple decades older read, oh, the kids these days love their emojis, <laughs> so let's do this thing on the Twitters. And it just, it, it reads as completely inauthentic. Uh-huh. And so the, the examples from politics that I then use are folks like a Rand Paul, a Ron Paul, or a Bernie Sanders, none of whom, with all due respect to those gentlemen, exude youth and coolness, but it's their authenticity that makes them cool. You don't doubt for a second that Ron Paul and Bernie Sanders really believe the things that they are saying and believe them passionately. And I think that is what matters so much more. Just the authenticity rather than trying so hard to be young and cool and millennial. And I think that's where brands and campaigns get the most tripped up is the they come in with this image of what a millennial is and they assume that millennials are all eating Tide Pods and consuming nothing but avocados and they just want to skateboard around and they, and it's it's this image of a of a total stereotype that doesn't really exist outside of maybe a few small enclaves in you know cities like New York or San Francisco, folks working in the tech or media spaces. Most millennials are not like that. We're not an alien species. So that's, that's my, my big encouragement is don't try too hard and assume that all millennials are this cartoonish stereotype. That's great advice. So as you parlay that into how the political parties should try to appeal to millennials beyond the the authenticity piece, which I think is a great point. Um, There are a lot of people, and I would think millennials included, feel politically homeless at the moment. You really don't feel like you fit in in either place. And I have read the things that you've written and, you know, comments that you've made about a, a tendency, again, I don't want to paint them with a broad brush as we've just talked about, but a tendency to really reject labels in a way that maybe somebody from another generation might have been more comfortable identifying as a Republican or as a Democrat. So given that fact, and given the fact that you've got, what are they, 83 million in the population, give or take? I, it's it's around 80 million. Around 80 million. Um, who are potentially up for grabs, right? So how should the parties be thinking about the millennial voter and how to appeal to them in addition to being more authentic? Well, one big place where the political parties and brands in corporate America really diverge is that corporate America and brands get it and they're trying very hard to win the millennial consumer. And the political parties, in my view, have completely abdicated their responsibility to try to engage with a new generation why? of voters. What, what, how are, why are they missing that? Part of it is because I think candidates and political parties think very short term. Uh, they are less likely to be worried about, am I winning over a voter that's going to be someone with my party for the next two decades? They're worried about, am I going to win somebody 10 months from now in the midterms? And, and so I get it. Um, whereas for a corporate brand, they're tending to take the longer view I want to win a customer when they're young so that they are a customer. They are buying my cheeseburgers. They are buying my laundry detergent, whatever it is, for the long haul. Political entities don't tend to think like that. And the fact is that even though you've got almost 80 million people in this generation, they really underperform 
uh, their potential as voters. That you have slightly more millennials than boomers as a share of eligible voters, but as far as actively participating voters, boomers are twice as likely to actually show up at the polls. And especially in a lower turnout election, in a primary, which increasingly these days because of gerrymandering and polarization, I mean, the primary is often where a lot of these races are getting won. People are worried about, I got to win this low turnout primary and guess who shows up in these races. And especially on the Republican side, you look at the demographics of who votes in a Republican primary and it is senior citizens. I mean, the bulk is coming from folks that are at least 55, 60, 65 up. And so I understand, but I'm dismayed by the incentives that lead, I think, especially Republicans to not pay enough attention to millennials. But but Republicans have frankly been aided by the fact that Democrats haven't done a great job either. I mean, the increase in young people identifying as political independence has been enormous and has really spiked in the last year or so. Uh, to your point, they're just not choosing to identify with labels. And that goes beyond political parties. I've seen data that young people, despite having the greenest political attitudes, are the least likely to call themselves environmentalist, despite having some of the most sort of pro-gender equality views, are not terribly likely to call themselves feminists. Even young women, um, they'll say, yes, I believe in the political equality of women, no, I don't believe the feminist movement necessarily represents me. And so there is this gap where people will hold certain views. But if you put on a label, that's it's confining. It's it means you're associating yourself with with baggage or a slew of positions you might not agree with. You might be young and lean toward the Democrats and vote for Democratic candidates nine times out of ten. But there are things that you think the Democratic Party stands for that you're not crazy about. And so why bother putting that label on myself? Uh, and, and sort of analogy that I use is think about the very first time you ever bought a piece of music physically, whether vinyl, record, cassette, free lore. What was the first piece of music you ever bought? Something horrible, I'm sure. Oh, <laughs> oh my gosh, I have no, I have no idea, I have no recollection. Although it would probably would have been um, when I was you know, really young, it would have been Grease or Saturday Night Fever or something like that. Oh, because I'm that old. <laughs> Mine was a cassette tape. Uh, I bought New Kids on the Block. Uh, the I think the album was called The Right Stuff. I think it had, it was a very excellent cassette. But at the time, you know, you buy this album, right? And you're committing. I'm committing to a lot of New Kids on the Block all at once. And it's a lot of songs all in the same order. Uh, but I haven't purchased a physical piece of music in years. You know, I subscribe to a streaming service and, uh, you know, I don't even have to commit to buying a, a, a whole album. I can just pick and choose songs here and there. You know, the new Justin Timberlake album is out and there are a handful of songs I like, but I didn't have to make the investment of buying the whole album. So if I live in that kind of a world, why should I have to buy the whole Republican or Democratic album? Why mm -hmm. should I have to buy the whole package and commit to something when maybe I just want a couple pieces of it here and there, and I want the ability to maybe change my mind later. I think that's how my generation is viewing a lot of things. Why do I have to sign up for the whole thing? I want the ability to, to stay flexible and to change my mind. That's so interesting. So, so let's talk, um, because I don't want us to run out of time, I wanna talk about the subset of millennial women, and you touched on this just a moment ago, and this notion of feminism. 
the most Googled word, the, the word of the year, Merriam-Webster uh, dictionary, the online dictionary said it was feminism because people were Googling it to figure out what the heck it meant. We've got marches. You know, we've now, there's now the mm-hmm. second of the women's marches has taken place. Um, you know, that approach doesn't appeal to all women, period. So how do millennial women think about this? So let's take something like the Me Too movement. I think that we should be able to divorce the Me Too movement from partisan politics because as we've seen over the last few weeks and months, there is, are plenty of bad actors in both parties who you know, are sort of being called out for bad behavior and, and thank goodness. Um, but I think for a lot of young women, they, we are lucky to be growing up in an era that is very different from the era that our mothers or grandmothers grew up in. There are things that I think sometimes we take for granted. Um, But I I also think that there is just a view of uh, what women should have the freedom and right to do that may be at odds with with sort of past iterations of feminism. Um, You're seeing a lot of young women nowadays, increasingly compared to women who were, um, you know, in their 20s, 20 years ago, who say that the most important, one of the most important things in life is having a career where they're a high earner. But at the same time, there are even more young women now who say being a good spouse and good parent is one of the most important things in life compared to 20 years ago. So young women, a lot of what they are facing is it's that pressure to kind of have it all. Um, But rather than an expectation of, okay, well, in order to be a good feminist, you need to be in the workforce working hard. There's also now this competing pressure of like, no, it's okay to, you know, stay home, be with your kids and have that perfect Pinterest life where, you know, you're making the beautiful cupcakes for the bake sale. And it's just this added level of pressure on, on young women. And so I think that is not a partisan thing. What there is an appetite for, I think, is policies that get that people are going to make very different life choices, that there's not one correct way to live that is the feminist way of living. Um, That if you decide and choose that you want to make those perfect cupcakes for Pinterest and be there with your kids and that's what you have chosen for your life and you have the ability to do that, that's great, more power to you. And if you've decided that what you're doing in your career is something you are passionate about and you want to spend most of your time doing that, that that's okay too. Um, And I think for a lot of young women, the idea that these are political battles or that you should be judged for making one choice or another just feels completely incorrect. And I, I think is part of why a lot of young women will say, I want to be treated equally. I want to be treated correctly. But I don't want someone telling me that it's wrong if I decide that I want to step back from the workforce a little bit. And I think that's that's something that a lot of young women are dealing with. And I don't think it's just young women. I mean, I, I oh, really, sure. I really ho- wholly reject the notion that women in general tend to be sort of painted in a particular, particular way. And the media really uh, perpetuates this notion of what leadership looks like for women, what success looks like for women. And it's a... It is really the reason why we're why we created. She said, she said, is because we want to showcase 
different models of leader, women's leadership, different examples of women who are inspiring, who are having an impact, who are giving back in really interesting and very, very diverse ways on both sides of the political aisle. You tend to not hear nearly as much about the amazing leadership, female leadership on the Republican side. You hear a lot about it on the other side yeah. of the aisle. And you and I have talked about this. Um, to, to, to that end, um, you know, we still have uh, a real lack of engagement on the part of women. We don't have as many women in elected office as what, you know, we would like to see. We don't have as many women in C-suite offices as what we would like to see. Um, there's a number of efforts underway um, on both sides of the aisle. The GOP has a lot more work to do. So as you think about this problem, what do you think is the main you know, the, the main thing that needs to happen from the standpoint of the Republican Party as it relates to the engagement of women, younger women, older women, all women. So the, a big difference between how Republicans and Democrats have come at this issue in the last couple of decades is that Democrats, for as long as I have been alive, I mean, Emily's List has existed as long as I have been alive on this planet, uh, have had dedicated efforts specifically focused on we're going to get more women elected. And Republicans, for reasons that I think are, are, are valid, have shied away from what we view as identity politics. That we say, look, we want the best person, person elected to an office, whatever gender, whatever race, whatever age. If you're the best for the job, we want you. We don't like the idea of, oh, we've got to check boxes here and there. The problem, though, is that if you don't pay any attention to it, you wind up in the situation that's where we are now, which is where it's something like less than 10% of the Republican caucus in the House of Representatives is female. I believe you have 22 women in the House right now who are Republican women. I think six of them are choosing to run for different offices, so they will not be running for re-election. And then of the remaining 16, as of yesterday, the Cook Political Report updated their, their ratings. Uh, they now have half of those women who are running for re-election in competitive seats. Mm -hmm. So uh, in order for Republicans to hang on to the number of Republican women in the House, in a tough year, it's going to take a lot of work. And I think it, this should be the flashing red signal that you have to pay more attention to this. This matters. Um, that women have to be asked to run for office time and time again. They have to be invited to be part of the process. and. It may be uncomfortable for a party that says, look, we don't care about identity politics. We don't care about labels. It doesn't mean you have to go and adopt the Democrat strategy, but it does mean acknowledging openly that this matters and that you have to make a concerted effort to go find people to run for office who do not look like what most of the Republican, you know, old white guys in Congress, God love them, what they look like. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there are a lot of groups that exist. You've got ViewPAC, you've got Right Women Right Now, you've got uh, Winning for Women, which just launched, which I'm happy to be, uh, I'm excited to be an advisor to. You know, a lot of these groups that are emerging on the right and that are gaining a lot of traction and a lot of interest, uh, but it's hard to compete with groups that have had a 30 plus year track record of doing this. And so Republicans have a lot of catching up to do. And I hope we can make that, that work happen quickly because I mean, the, the worst case scenario is we've got a year where women are overwhelmingly excited about polit pro political participation. You have a dramatic increase in the number of women overall running for Congress. 
But those gains are almost entirely on the Democratic side. And Republicans have got to sound the alarm, go out, recruit, 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 give women support, and try to turn the tide of these numbers. That's great. Um, it's a big, big hurdle for sure. Um, so I want to talk more about you. We see you on television. Um, we have an opportunity to hear your wisdom around polling and around millennials, but we don't hear as much about Kristen the person and how you <laughs> got here, right? So you grew up in Orlando, Florida. How did you get from Orlando, Florida, where I understand you spent some time at Universal Studios as a kid? That was my first job. Your first job. The actress <laughs> on the King Kong ride. It was the perfect job for a kid who was a drama club, you know, drama club kid who was getting like paid to go just be a bad, hammy actor. Uh, on a, in an air-conditioned ride, thank goodness, <laughs> in Florida. Uh, it, was, it was fantastic. You know, around that, the time that I was in high school, I had these two kind of loves. One was the arts, music, theater, uh, loved being in the school musical, being in plays, singing in choir. Um, but then I also got involved on the debate team. And this was around the time of the 2000 election. You may have heard of it. Uh, you may have heard that Florida played a pretty big role in that election. So this was all what I was exposed to when I was growing up. Got really, uh, you know, paid a lot of attention to that election because it, it was just there was so much craziness going on around us uh, in Florida. And then, you know, watched The West Wing. Got really uh, started to believe that that's what I wanted out of my life. There was this character, Ainsley Hayes, mm -hmm. who is this fabulous, you know, sassy, intelligent Republican woman on the show. And I just thought... That's what I want to be when I grow up. I have found it. Uh, so I went to University of Florida, studied political science, but I always had the bug. I wanted to get to D.C. So I graduated early, came up to Washington. Um, I had started off doing an internship at the NRCC in campaign finance and loved everybody that I worked with there and realized I absolutely hated the world of campaign finance. <laughs> um, but I was pretty good with a spreadsheet, you know, alphabetizing, uh, checks and adding up columns and, and beginning to try to see patterns in, in, in that kind of data made me think, well, what other interesting ways can I apply? If, you, if you're good with a spreadsheet, how else can you apply that skill in politics? Um, I had wanted to be a speechwriter, a press secretary, someone in the comms world, and I got nudged into polling because it was like, well, if you like the math, quantitative, let's go ask questions, let's get answers piece of things, but you love the verbal side and the media and how do we tell compelling stories, polling is the merger of those two skill sets. So took a job answering phones, updating spreadsheets at a polling firm, and worked there for about eight years, learning the trade, building my own kind of book of business, um, building my own skill set. That's where I really got interested in this millennial question, because as a young Republican woman, I started getting asked more and more, how can you be Republican? You seem so nice and normal. And that sort of raised an alarm for me. Uh, with, okay, all these people in my generation, they're really excited about Barack Obama. That's to that's fine. But they also don't seem to be at all interested in conservative issue positions or even considering to vote Republican for other offices. This is a problem. So I wrote my master's thesis about that in grad school. And then from there, uh, some folks started noticing this, you know, 100-page PDF I put out there on the internet. God bless social media. It meant that I was able to kind of get it in front of the right people and 
the rest is history. That's amazing. It's really amazing. So it's been kind of a meteoric rise, right? You you took your thesis, you turned it into The Selfie Vote, which became a best-selling book about the voting habits of the millennial generation. Um, but you look at this incredible success. You are 33. For the next week about and a half. About <laughs> to have a birthday. About, about to have a birthday. Do you have any fear or anxiety as you sort of look at what's ahead? Oh, I mean, I mean constantly. And, and I think this is, you know, every time I read these uh, stories about, you know, women suffer from imposter syndrome, you know, this idea that you're, you're always worried that one day someone is going to be like, actually, Kristen's totally wrong and like has had this, that, that there's like some data point somewhere in my book that I had based everything on that's going to turn out to be incorrect <laughs> and suddenly like years of my career will collapse. You know, I mean, these are, these are just like the anxieties that, that I know are irrational. I know they are, but that they exist uh, because, you know, I feel very blessed to have had the career I've had, but I'm also very cognizant that, that success can be very fleeting. Um, that, you know, one day the thing you're talking about can be very fashionable and the next it won't be. I mean, so take this whole topic of millennials and young voters and the GOP. I mean, headed into election day uh, in November 2016, I was pretty convinced Donald Trump, uh, you know, his candidacy has not done what Republicans need it to do to fix their positioning with young voters. Uh, and, you know, once this election is over, we got a lot of work to do. And then Republicans won. Uh, was glad, you know, we have a Speaker Ryan still running the House and such. But in the uh, face of that victory, suddenly topics like what do we do about winning young voters were no longer in fashion. Uh, and so, you know, there are these ups and downs. It may well be that Republicans struggle in the midterms and then suddenly we care again that, that millennials play a big role in helping Democrats win seats and suddenly this becomes a topic that's in vogue. But I think it's, you know, there's always this worry that there's this thing that I care a lot about. Is everybody else going to care? And, and will that all go away? And so I've, I've seen the ups and downs of this. Mm-hmm. And my advice to young women when they're asking, you know, what should I be thinking about for my career is pick something that you care a lot about, even if other people don't care a lot about it now. Um, what matters is that you care, that you're willing to do the hard work to make yourself an expert on it, to create interesting content about whatever this topic is that you that is compelling. And then when the moment is right, you will be there as the expert on this topic. Um, You can try to create the marketplace of interest for for things in this topic. When I started writing my thesis, young voters and the GOP, I mean, I was, gosh, I was in my mid-20s. Nobody really cared about this topic. Um, And it took me a number of years to finally get on the radar of there was a super PAC that decided, oh, we want to focus on young voters. You wrote a thesis. Come help us. And then even after that, it was two years before a publisher offered me the opportunity to write a book. I mean, before that, I had gone through copies of books that were related to what I wanted to write about. I looked through the acknowledgments. I found the names of all of the literary agents and publishers involved in those books, contacted all of them cold, and 100% of the responses I got were, that sounds like it'll be a lovely magazine piece. Best of luck to you. No kidding. And so you just have to keep trying. You're going to get a lot of of rejection. You may find that the thing you care a lot about is not the thing that's in vogue, is not the thing that people care about. But if you care about it and you keep working at it, 
you can create an environment where people do start to care. You can create that audience and you can be ready if and when the winds shift and suddenly your topic is the topic of the moment. How do you, so you've had a lot of success, right? Very early on. How do you stay grounded? Oh gosh, well, <laughs> well, thank you very much. You I mean, are I've, very grounded I, and, and you're very authentic too. I mean, it's a, it's a pleasure to, to talk to you and to know you because you are authentic and grounded, but how, how do you manage that? Well, one, I think it's always remembering that again, this stuff is, is fleeting, right? That you should never get too comfortable that, oh, I'm going to take it for granted that, you know, after this, I'm going to go do CNN and then, you know, I'll be on TV this weekend. And you never take that stuff for granted. You never know when the bookers are going to stop calling. You never know when the publisher is going to go, no, we, we don't think we want you to write a book. And it goes back to being, well, that sounds like a nice magazine piece. You just never know when this stuff is going to stop. Um, and so trying not to take everything, one, don't take it for granted. And two, don't assume that you can just sort of stop working and coast. I mean, always being, you know, being sort of humble and realizing you've still got to work for everything, um, I think is, is important. And I also think that a big thing that has helped me is having friends who are, we are, uh, m many of my friends tend to be in the political space, but we rarely talk about politics and we rarely, you know, in case of, of emergency, I can always turn to them for help, but, our friendship is completely separate from our professional worlds. And I think that is so important. I think in Washington, it's very easy to have a friend network that is so closely tied into your professional life. And, and these things bleed together. And I think having people in your world who don't watch cable news all the time, they don't know that you were just on CNN that day and, you know, that's great, but that's not why they want to hang out with you. Uh, I think that's so, 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 so important. <laughs> Absolutely. That's, that's terrific. Okay, so we ask each of our guests to leave us with either a life hack or a piece of advice, mm. something that you, you know, you think about, a, you've, you've already given us some great advice on staying grounded, but, but something that you oftentimes share with other people or something that really keeps you going or it's a life hack or a mantra, something that you always are reminding yourself of and that you want to share with our listeners. So I remember uh, a couple of years ago encountering the getting things done philosophy of, of how to sort of manage productivity, which this all sounds very dry, but uh, the, the reason why I think it was so important is that I find so many people, especially I, I think women in Washington who are trying to juggle a lot of things, if you think of your brain like a computer, think about when you've got, you know, 15 apps open on your phone, how fast the battery drains and how slow everything tends to work. And in our minds, it's easy to have 15 different apps open at once, right? You're worried about what am I going to, what's, what's the plan for dinner and what am I going to do this weekend? And then, oh, I've got this report due for a client and oh, I forgot to follow up on that email. And it's this idea of when something comes in, if you can handle it in less than two minutes, just do it. I am the world's worst procrastinator. And so forcing myself when something comes in that is an email that I could very easily respond to, that is an appointment I can very easily put on my calendar, instead of just letting that thing linger in your inbox as this like kind of haunting you and taking up 2% of your brain power, just do it. Just try as best as you can 
to keep as few apps open at once as possible, and that will allow you to think more deeply, more creatively, uh, and with less anxiety about the things that you really do need to focus on. It helps you keep the important thing the important thing. We could go on all day. This is fantastic. It's so wonderful to have you here. You all can learn more about Kristen by visiting our website at www.shesaidshesaidpodcast.com. There we'll have show notes as well as links to Kristen's website, her podcast, and much, much more. Kristen, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, of course.